I'm Chris Biddle and this is episode 75 of Inside AgriTurf and thanks for joining me. Now I'm currently taking a summer break in the recording schedule of season 3 which will recommence on the 15th of September and this will be a special season for me as during it I not only celebrate my 80th birthday but I also mark 60 years in the agriturf sector starting out as a demonstrator with four tractors back in 1962. So I thought I'd bring you some snippets, a montage of voices from this current season, which has covered so many topical talking points. And there are extracts from 20 guests shoehorned into just over 30 minutes. However, I start this selection on a sad note. One of the guests in an episode focusing on agricultural engineering and the environment last February was Caroline Drummond, MBE, the founder and driving force behind LEAF, that stands for Linking Environment and Farming, who sadly passed away recently. And Caroline was a force of nature, a visionary and a champion for sustainable farming. And one of her shining achievements was the creation of Open Farm Sunday, where farmers opened their doors to the general public and she was eagerly looking forward to the return of the event after its suspension during the COVID years. Caroline, welcome. And tell me, what are the plans looking like for the Open Farm Sundays to get back? Thank you very much, Chris. Well, they're looking good. Um, I have to say, not being defeated by COVID, we did run some online events through 2020 and 21, uh, which were very well received. And actually, we had a live event last year. But uh, fingers crossed and touch wood, uh, this year is, is going to be good. 12th of June. Uh, so something for everybody's diary. And uh, we've already got 38 farmers registered to date and looking really encouraging you know I think the, the great thing about Open Farm Sunday it's an opportunity for non-farmers to kind of really discover the story behind their food what goes on out on farm look at all the high tech the machinery and right through to how farmers are looking after the environment as well. Sadly Caroline passed away after a short illness on the 23rd of May at the age of 58 just days before Open Farm Sunday, and regretfully didn't live to see the return of her beloved event. Tributes poured in from across the political and farming community, and I had the pleasure of meeting Caroline on many occasions, and her passion for the work of LEAF was an inspiration to everyone, and she is sadly missed by the farming community. 2022 has also been the year when the industry woke up to normality after COVID years. Shows and open days returned, but it's clear that many companies had used great ingenuity to continue a something approaching normal service during the lockdown period. One such was Ernest Doe, organiser of the famous Doe show since 1960, who weren't going to let an inconvenience spoil the party. I spoke to Doe's sales director, Graham Parker, about their virtual show. So with our 2021 show, that was a, a, an online event. Um, we, we, got to, uh, we got to the end of October 2020 and we really had to think long and hard. We thought at that time we weren't going to have a show. So we sort of plopped ourselves into uh, 
uh, into the uh, the world of technology, and we developed a web website. Um, we teamed up with our friends at Cheffins to do the auction, um, just so that we could have a 2021 show. So not having a show was was never on our minds. Really, we, we're always going to do something. It must have been you were employing new technology and uh, you were doing lots of online videos. Were there many misgivings in the run up to the show, whether it all work and so on? Oh, yeah, we have some sleepless nights. Uh, I can tell you uh, that that Christmas, it ruined my Christmas completely. Our marketing manager, Hayley, um, she was talking about days where she was trying to get this microsite together and get it all working. And uh, there were some nights there she never went to bed. So, uh, yeah, we we had some stressful moments. We had to bring it all together in in a really short amount of time. You know, we we were hoping that uh, COVID was going to disappear by that. By, by the time the show would come but you know it was getting worse and worse as opposed to better so we we had to do something and um and it and it worked it, it turned out to be our best show ever in really? terms of in terms of pounds shillings and pence taken um it actually was our highest turnover show uh, and no one stepped on on the ground here at Alting. And it wasn't only dealers who had to get their thinking caps on about how to trade during COVID restrictions. Here's David Withers, MD of Iseki UK, talking about how a supplier maintained a presence amongst dealers and customers. Um, Because of necessity and lockdowns and so on, uh, you were one of the first suppliers to embrace selling online and use social media uh, because of the lockdowns. Uh, Looking back, was, was that a lucky break for you? I think it was actually. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't like to claim that it has any great strategic vision for it or anything like that. It's just one of those frustrating things when you've got your own business and you, you know, you go to work every day trying to drive it forwards, to you know, meet clients, build the business, build the brand, and then you're stuck at home and unable really to influence what is going on. It was intensely frustrating, and so we're just kind of kicking around. So, what can we do to try to maintain that relationship with our customers and try to have that? you know, continuing brand building going on even whilst we were stuck at home. And, you know, it was during the very tight part of lockdown where unless you were at a number 10 uh, party, you weren't really allowed out. And uh, and so, uh, you know, this was something we could do at home with my wife filming uh, these videos on her iPhone. So it cost us nothing. And I just felt as much as anything, it made me feel better that I was actually contributing towards the business rather than just being a, a helpless spectator as it were soon however the industry was able to return to something approaching normality and the perennial issue of staffing levels challenged dealers i asked simon holmes the group service manager for the th white dealer group how he was finding the recruitment of new staff um very difficult very difficult indeed i i to, to find qualified staff is nearly impossible anyone that has got good qualifications has come from a you know working for a, a rival dealer very very difficult to attract those into our business making that jump it, it sounds easy but when push comes to shove right at the end then the loyalties will go back to the the, the dealer that they've they've been with so we have had some successes, but that's a difficult way to go. And I understand it because you'll have somebody who's really good at what they do on the products that they've been working on. And when they come to work for us with a, a rival manufacturer, um, then they've got to start again. Okay, it's not 
right again, but they're not at the top of the tree. So it, it's a difficult thing to do. Attracting at the other end of the scale, the right apprentices is also difficult. There's a, a lot of youngsters that think that they're owed a job and uh, we're not there to just take on anybody. I want to take on the best that I can find and we will wait and choose the right people. And so that's very time consuming to do. And you've got to be very patient because some of those youngsters, they're 16. They don't they haven't had a lot of experiences, but it's just picking out who's actually going to, to uh, be any good. Interestingly, a lot of those youngsters coming in are not coming from farming backgrounds. A lot of the people that are applying are just thinking, well, this is a nice industry to come into. But I don't think they appreciate how complex it is and how difficult it is to, to get into it if you don't understand a little bit of the, the mechanics of it and certainly the way agriculture works. Now, many industries have to look outside their traditional market to others who might have the right skills and attitude for a career in agricultural engineering. An interesting new initiative, Forces Farming, has been launched which aims to tap into the potential of those leaving the armed forces. I asked the founder of Forces Farming, Jeremy Gibbs, who is ex-John Deere but currently farming in Hampshire, about the process of introducing ex-servicemen or women into agricultural engineering. Yeah, so the idea really is when someone decides to leave, that's either through, let's say, decisions they've made themselves, they, they're at the right age to move into a new career as a young person, should we say. So with the average age of a service leaver being 29, they've still got quite a long career ahead of them. So then they start to explore what potential opportunities there are out there. And I'll be honest, from my feedback from the people I'm talking to, 90% of the time it's word of mouth. They will talk to their friends and see what they're doing, what they've done, what they fitted in. And then really it's that classic one of social media these days, you know, a handheld device is everyone's connection to the world. So through different um, apps and, and, and networks and things like that, people will start to explore what opportunities are available to them. And then once they decide on a direction, um, let's say in this case, forces farming, then really the process starts of, well, are you looking at an education path while you're still serving? In which case it might be two years doing a course or doing some experience placements, or if they've already left, then it might be a case of simply linking them up to, you know, someone that's looking for an engineer in that case. That's really the two routes that I find. It's either someone planning their leave and they're planning what they're going to do next, or it's someone that's already come out and they're looking just to find their next step or, or a door open into an agricultural job. Oh, despite ongoing operational issues, the UK dealer trade appears in good heart. But I wondered whether there was sufficient internal or external investment going into dealerships today. James Tuckwell, MD of the multi-branch family dealership Tuckwell's, was in no doubt. I don't know. I think there's, I think there's a fair amount of investment going on um, in infrastructure, in, in dealerships across the country at the moment, if I'm honest. I think there's a huge amount of money being spent by all dealers and not just, uh, you know, of all, of all colours in training and development of people. I think, you know, everyone recognises that people are the key to all of our businesses and it doesn't matter how big you get. If you haven't got your family feel, if all your 
team members don't feel like people, if they're made to feel like a number, if you can't keep your relationships with the customers, you know, if you if you can't keep your feet on the ground and be the people that you were when your dealerships were small family run businesses, then I don't think in our industries you've got a lot of hope. You know, it's all a relationship relationship game. So I think the way I look at it in terms of infrastructure, premises, training, development, wages, yeah, vehicles, whatever you name it, I, I think most of those dealerships of, of any make and manufacturer these days are investing quite heavily in, in on the on the grounds. And continuing the theme of recruitment, is it best to carry out a search yourself or leave it to a specialist agency? I spoke to Grace Nugent and Stuart Goodenson from the DeLacy Executive Recruitment Company about their tips for working with an agency, which ended up with Stuart channeling the Spice Girls. But but Grace first. It's our job to make this job achievable and to find that right person. So we have to you know look at the solutions together. Sometimes it's not as simply a case of replacing one salesperson with another salesperson you know sometimes it might be different angles that we have to look at to achieve the goal that we're mm-hmm. all trying to achieve together yeah. and, just, and just to support um exactly what what grace is saying there is that what we find often is there can be very much a difference between what they th- what they want and what they think they want <laughs> also you know you kind of go into this thinking that the, the that the person at the top of the business knows exactly what they want. But very often these job descriptions are then written third hand by somebody in the HR department who has missed some of the nuance in in what the business needs. Um, And therefore, um, unless the client communicates really, really openly with us, we can get lost between that, that gap between what the MD thinks they want and what the HR person heard that they want. Uh, And sometimes recruitment businesses get you know lost in in that gap so what we expect from our uh, working with with clients is just communication 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 and understanding what they really 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 want there's a song coming out I knew, thank you yes <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad somebody said it <laughs> and that's it This industry can get what it wants, what it really, really wants, by putting its head above the parapet as often as it can and using its voice through word of mouth, as Jeremy Gibbs suggested. There is no shortage of ambassadors, young and old, and people such as independent consultant David Kirshner. Was he still as passionate about the industry as he was when he started 50 years ago? I, my passion and positivity has never dimmed, Chris, and I don't think it ever will. It's an amazing industry which uh, offers anybody who tear, cares to take part in it uh, limitless opportunities. The subject of diversification often crops up amongst the specialist dealers. Do I increase my product portfolio or is there a danger that I might take my eye off the ball of my core business? As someone who seemingly has found a good fit with an existing business is Max Pierce, who runs a successful plant hire business near Southampton, but who took the opportunity recently to buy a specialist garden machinery dealership. I wondered whether they were still run separately or whether hire and sales do mix. And it seems to be the more that I look at garden machinery companies, the more they all seem to have a few machines in there. They don't really push it hard. It's it's no easy. It's, it's it's not an easy feature trying to 
deal on the plant side of things and trying to do the higher side of things. It's it's you know it's not the easiest thing in the world. And I think a lot of garden machinery companies seem to dabble in the idea of having a few small tools, you know, a few lawnmowers, maybe a turf cutter, a scarifier. And that's exactly what KGM had done. You know, they had over the over the few years they'd had a, a various bits and bobs they'd hired out, but nothing, nothing to really drive the higher side of it. When I bought KGM, my idea was I always wanted to keep it in-house. So we uh, we bought the company internally. So KGM is now a trading name of XL Plant and Tool Hire. So we we could have the same access to everything. And we sort of said from day one that we took all the KGM customers and all the XL customers. And when we sent a massive newsletter out and said, look, your account now covers both bases. So if you want to buy guard machinery, you come to us. You've still got your credit account. If you want to hire stuff, from the guard machinery side of it, you have access to the hire. And I think by doing that, it just allowed, you know, already we're seeing numerous amounts of hire equipment on golf courses and stuff like that. They never really have the options to access that equipment now. And we we offer quite a lot of specialist kit. So it just kind of worked well. And there's the half-time whistle. And in the second half of this sound montage from the current season, you'll hear from Martin Sanders, Mark Daniel in New Zealand, Keith Kent... Jimmy the Mower, Stephen Edwards, Jason Booth, Corey Doctorow in the US, and Ruth Bailey on the AEA and BAGMA coming together. But first, we hear from Peter Hill. Now, earlier this year, the Farmers Weekly published an exhaustive report on Britain's biggest farm machinery dealerships. It was compiled by freelance farm journalist Peter, and I wondered how he had set about such a daunting project. It, it all started with uh, sitting down and making a list off the top of my head, uh, which after a short while I realised wasn't going to be the most reliable way of putting together a definitive list. Um, so then I went to the company's house website. Um, and unusual, unusually for any industry, you know, the UK is very open about company results. Frustratingly, you can't easily get the same sort of information from other European countries, although you can get it if you know where to look. Uh, And it's absolutely impossible in North America, which of course is a a massive and very interesting market, um, unless they're public companies, uh, there's absolutely no access to company information. So anyway, I I started drawing up a list from the top of my head of uh, of dealers who I thought would qualify. Then, as I say, it, it occurred to me that probably wasn't the most reliable way. And so then I had to go on to the manufacturer's website and to their dealer locators, um, really to run through. And, and in the end, I looked at about, uh, well, approaching 200 uh, farm machinery dealerships because I was terrified of missing somebody, <laughs> basically. And, and that was very useful, albeit you know time-consuming. So having got my list, I then would go on to the company's house website and uh, – Basing it on the 2020 broadly trading year uh, meant that all the companies had filed their results by then. And so that gave me the means of comparison for the scale of the different businesses. So congratulations to Peter on a terrific piece of work. Um, But might he now have made himself indispensable to compile an annual survey? Now, many in the power equipment industry particularly will have known and done business with Martin Sanders when he was with Honda Motor Europe. And now retired, Martin is using his extensive experience to help businesses through mentoring and coaching. So given the volatile times we are living in, I asked Martin what 
he thought constituted long-term planning these days? Yeah, I think the the, the long term is, is is still sort of three years for for any business, and you you need to have that uh, that plan. If you don't have a plan, it's very difficult to judge yourself. So I think uh, uh, you need to have that longer term plan. The to the medium term, I would say, is probably the 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 year, and you need to be looking at. Uh, uh, what what you want to be doing over that year, and especially in the, the finances, and then of course the short term can be hours or days, etc. <laughs> I always remember going to see Len Breakwell in my very early days of of being in Honda Power Products. One of the things which was really interesting is that uh, in in Honda at that time we used to say, "Oh, how many units do you do? You know, how many lawnmowers, etc." Len, I, I came out, I had all the information, but I said to Len, oh, how many units have you done today? And he looked at me and he, and he said, it's nothing to do with the number of units. He said, you need to understand how much it costs to open the door. Yeah. So it's about the model mix. It's about the profitability, et cetera. He said, if you know how much you, that is and you've, you've covered all your costs by lunchtime, you can have a good afternoon. In his, in his dulcet tones. And for those who have known former garden machinery dealer Len Brakewell, you will appreciate his no-nonsense approach to business. And now to New Zealand, where I caught up with Mark Daniel, the machinery editor of the country's leading farming journal. A Welshman, Mark worked for Barris and Class UK before moving to New Zealand in 2002. And given its remoteness, I asked Mark about the current supply of parts and equipment. And this was recorded last March, since when New Zealand has opened much more. Um, I understand parts is not too bad um, because the government is all the planes that used to, the, the, the commercial planes that used to run from New Zealand up to Europe, you know, Air New Zealand, uh, the government is now subsidizing those passenger planes to be freight planes. So might, it might take a little bit longer, I guess, to get um, spare parts in, but, but they are getting here for sure. Uh, when it comes to new product, uh, the lead time on tractors pre-COVID typically was about five months. That's now pushed out to 10 months to a year. And certainly things like combine harvesters. I heard a story from, um, from a CNH uh, area manager a couple of weeks ago that said they're talking 16 months to get a combine over here now. Does it come yeah, direct? It's not a huge market, Chris. Only 20 combines a year sold in New Zealand. So yeah. they've obviously done good production and sent it elsewhere and said, don't worry for me. Uh, I even saw a little note in your uh, in your magazine to say that um, rural news were even running short of paper. <laughs> And we, I'm absolutely right. We've had to change the quality. We, we were quite sort of different in using very, very high-grade paper. But in the last in the last um, three months, the price of that paper has doubled, but you can't get it anyway, you know. So we're going back to old-fashioned newsprinters, they call it. But again, the freight the freight thing has just killed a lot of stuff over here. To give you an idea, Chris, pre-COVID, a 40-foot high-cube container landed in Auckland, out of typically out of Germany or out of Italy, you know, from one of the tractor plants. Uh, which would hold 230 horsepower tractors with all the charges was about between 10 and 11,000 New Zealand dollars. That same container is now $32,000. Gosh. Yeah. And but... that's if you can get space on it because a lot of the boats are coming as far as Australia and saying, well, sorry, we ain't coming to New Zealand because there's, you know, such a small number of containers coming to New Zealand nowadays. 
Yeah. And then again, there's a, there's a compounded problem. If, if those big container ships don't come to New Zealand, the empty containers don't get collected up. So that pushes more uh, pressure on the supply chain, you know, because they need empty, empty containers back in North America and Asia and Europe to refill, you know. So. And now to a quartet of turf professionals for this podcast is called Inside AgriTurf. First, Keith Kent. Keith worked initially at Leicester City and was appointed head groundsman at Old Trafford for Manchester United before he changed codes to become head groundsman at Twickenham for the Rugby Football Union. So how did that come about? Would you believe I was headhunted by the then director of the stadium, Richard Knight? Richard Knight, I met, he did a tour of big, big stadiums, Newcastle, Wembley, Liverpool. He went to all the big stadiums and he wanted to know, because Twickenham was going to be developed, it was going to become a wraparound stadium. And he wanted to know how to look after a wraparound stadium. And I got on well with Richard. I, I wasn't looking for a job. I just told him how I did this, that, the other. And... A few months later, I got a call from a, a firm of headhunters saying that Twickenham wanted to interview me. And I thought about it and I thought, well, my mum always taught me to be polite and, and courteous, so I'll go for the interview. And I went down there and Richard Knight was charming, took me for a run round Richmond, showed me the pitch, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know what? I've been in football 32 years. Why not? Mm. And that's and, and one of the best things is I don't understand rugby. I'd hosted rugby at Old Trafford. We had England versus New Zealand, if you remember. And I, I'd played rugby briefly at school, four or five games. But the only rule I really understood is that you can't pass it forward. So it, it, I thought... I could do this because I'm never going to get wound up. I'm never going to shout at a referee and I'm never going to worry about who wins or loses because I don't understand it. All I know is my grass is being played on. And that's how I did it. But funny, a, a funny story, months later, somebody asked Richard Knight why he chose me. And he was a great fellow, Richard Knight. He said, well, we wanted one of the top three groundsmen in the country and they weren't available, so we went for Keith. <laughs> <laughs> and now a story of ordinary folk, as they say in the archers. Jimmy Broadhouse cuts grass for a living. He runs a small grass-cutting contract business in Shropshire, looking after parks, open spaces and so on. A keen user of social media... He posted a picture of a council playing field that he'd just cut and his accompanying words struck a chord and it went viral, which resulted in his new persona as Jimmy the Mower and indeed a turf influencer. Jimmy recalls that day. It was just, I got a friend who was on holiday at the time and, and I was cutting the football pitch and it just, one of those days when you just cut it, the grass was already short when I started, there were hardly any clippings on top the sunlight was in the right place. It just looked fantastic. And I tried to frame it up for a photograph. And all I could get was the council tip behind it with a JC being there, crushing stuff down into skips. And I thought, well, I can't hide that fact. I need to show that this is what I'm doing and where I'm doing it. So I just took the photograph. What was it? It might only be a council field next to the tip. Um, but to the kids around here playing football, it's Wembley. And that was born. 
Indeed, and that photograph led to some pretty exciting visits you had. Yeah, and there's a lot more in the pipeline, believe me. Yeah, yeah, there is. All I kept saying to my wife when this started, uh, it started and we were running the contracting business, and it was right. I've got BBC Radio Shopshire on the phone. Can you do an interview with them? Can they come and see you? It was like, right, okay. And it was the newspaper. Can we do some photographs? Can we come and see you, please? Another newspaper. Can we come and see you? Can we come and do this? Then it was radio station. Can we come and see you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is right. And I kept saying to my wife, don't worry. It'll all be over by Friday. You know, it's just a storm in a teacup. That's it. By Friday. And I still say that now. Oh, well, it'll all be over by Friday. Don't worry. But it just keeps going. And yeah, that was an inspiring story from the turf care industry, which also included um, Jimmy being invited to help cut the pitch at Wembley Stadium by grounds manager Carl Stanley. And it's true that British turf and turf care professionals are in demand around the world. Uh, I spoke with Stephen Edwards from specialist turf grower InTurf about the origins of turf production in the UK and whether it stemmed from farmers seeking an alternative commercial crop. No, at, at the moment, no. But there was a time that maybe they did. And I think that time was probably in the early 1990s. Uh, probably around 92 or just after when the what we now call the European Union was sort of reformed and quotas came into the frame uh, and I think farmers were looking at different ways to diversify and I mean when you think about it 30 odd years ago there was only a handful of turf growers and mainly small localised farms and mostly growing sheep grazed meadow turf. And there was probably only two or three professional cultivated turf growers then. What happened was, I think these landowners and farmers started talking to specialist companies like ourselves, uh, which like I've said, there was only a couple of at the time, they decided after conversations with maybe maybe even carrot growers and, and leek growers as well, you see, who were specialised uh, in their own field, pardon the pun, at the time. Uh, I think they decided, particularly where turf growing was concerned, that, that they could make more money from renting the land than actually investing in the equipment and mechanisation and farm labour. Because if you think at the time, bigger tractors were coming in and uh, less labour was used. Uh, and of course, turf harvesting then was all manually done. So, yeah. so it, was, it, it was a no-brainer, really. We were paying good rent. It was a steady income for landowners, farmers. And uh, they didn't just roll that sort of diversification out to turf growers specifically. They did also target single crop specialists like your carrot growers and your, your leek and your salad people. Now, away from elite and professional sports, there are thousands of venues used to play recreational sport, at least 75,000 at the last count, and they mostly have to be tended and prepared by an army of volunteers to ensure that they are suitable and safe. 
Jason Booth, a former head groundsman for Leeds Rugby at Headingley and aspiring professional cricketer, is now Chief Operating Officer for the GMA, that's the Grounds Management Association, and also responsible for the Pitch Advisory Service. He is still heavily involved as a player and official at the famous Barnsley Cricket Club in Yorkshire, which, like many others, is finding that the days of the week-in, week-out player or volunteer has disappeared. So I asked him how they coped to fill teams and, more importantly, to care for the pitch and the ground. Volunteer-wise, I don't think it's so much of a problem, as long as you can identify, Chris what you want them to volunteer and, and, and how much time they have to give up. So if you want somebody to go and sit on a cricket roller for an hour, there'll be a lot of people put their hands up to be yeah. able to do that. I've got an hour spare or I'm, I'm, I'm going up to training to watch my youngster. I'll jump on the roller for you. I think the volunteering side, I think, is, is, is not an issue. It's actually explaining to them what you want them to volunteer for and how much time it would be. I think one of the things where our programme, Gantip as it was, now PAS, failed in the early years is that we were identifying volunteering positions, but we weren't identifying how long it would take. So we should have said that, are you available to volunteer to put the football net? So it will take you 30 minutes. You know what I mean? If individuals and parents knew that it would take 30 minutes, the sort of volunteering, oh, I haven't got enough time. If they knew it was 30 minutes, I think the, the we're finding that a lot of people have got time. So identifying for each task how long it would take, it makes it easier for people to uh, commit to uh, volunteering. And now, from Barnsley in Yorkshire to Burbank in California, where I caught up with Corey Doctorow. Now, you might remember the news that a fleet of John Deere tractors stolen by the Russians from a Ukraine dealership and transported to Chechnya had subsequently been disabled remotely. And this was generally hailed as a feel-good story amongst the unremittingly bad news from the current conflict. Now, Corey is a journalist and human rights activist who has followed the story closely and is worried about the long-term consequences. He takes up the story and reflects on the current right-to-repair lawsuits being presented by groups of US farmers in the courts over there. When when John Deere started to vinlock its tractors, again, they said it was because farmers were uh, could hurt themselves or damage our food safety by affecting their own repairs, that they might buy counterfeit parts, that they're sort of naive country bumpkins who could not work on these sensitive electronic gear. But really what it was about was charging farmers $200 to come out and fix their $600,000 tractor at where fixing amounted to typing an unlock code into the console of a device that the farmer had themselves already fixed. It's charging $200 to make you wait for two days. And and that is where all of this remote locking stuff comes from in these John Deere tractors that were bricked in Russia. It is part of this overall scheme to turn farmers into a new kind of tenant farmer, where instead of paying an aristocrat for your land, you pay a kind of transhuman immortal colony organism called a limited liability corporation for the use of your tractor. Uh, But just as surely as you cannot farm without land, you cannot farm without your tractor. And so you are every bit as much a kind of manorial serf as you would have been if your land was owned by an aristocrat. Right to repair law 
Well, first of all, we had a right to repair um, federal uh, executive order in the United States. There's a right to repair directive that just passed in the European Union. The Federal Trade Commission has just gone after a bunch of firms that violate something called the Magnuson Warranty Act that says you can't get your warranty service if you get a third-party repair. And they forced um, Westinghouse and Harley-Davidson and a bunch of other firms to strike that language from their warranties. Um, so, you know, repair is becoming uh, much more central and, you know, that case for that was made by the pandemic where, you know, suddenly we couldn't ship goods halfway around the world for repair. We couldn't get parts from halfway around the world and, and we were in extremis. And so, you know, the case for repair is, is stronger than it's ever been. And I think we're, we're looking at a, a, a new moment in, in repair and more broadly in, in technological self-determination, the right to decide how your stuff works. And lastly, in this sound montage, Reflections on the news last year of intense interest and relevance to the UK dealer trade that the Manufacturers Trade Association, the AEA, that's the Agricultural Engineers Association, had bought the dealer representative body BAGMA, that's British Agricultural and Garden Machinery Association. So a year on, I asked AEA Chief Executive Ruth Bailey whether there had been any concerns amongst members from either association about the implications of the manufacturer's body now owning the dealer's association. We were concerned, Chris. We did in our discussions building up to the um, when we, we came together, we did anticipate there might be some. What was surprising was we didn't, receive any adverse comments to be honest I think there might have been one or two but in terms of the general general consensus of, of, of people who we spoke to certainly all the AEA members that I've spoken to I've spoken at length with lots of members it's all very positive our members that they know they need that national coverage they know they need to distribute a product they know they haven't got the infrastructure themselves and they need to get that product to the end user and they need to supply um the services that go after the sale of a product um, to that end user, they can't do that, and they're not doing that, you know, without some form of distribution. So the one needs the other, and and it was positive, absolutely positive uh, from my side of things. Well, there you have it: a variety of voices commenting on topical issues from the last few months. In the show notes to this episode, you will find a time-stamped listing of all the contributors together with a link to the full episode from which these excerpts have been taken. And the autumn season of Inside AgriTurf commences on the 15th of September with another eclectic programme reflecting on the variety, the professionalism and the contribution that the AgriTurf industry plays in today's fast-moving, ever-changing society. So I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me, and this is Inside AgriTurf. Inside AgriTurf